0: Hello? morning. that was louder than I thought. So my prayer for today is this, and really this is my prayer every day. God, hold us in your truth. Amen. Okay, show of hands if you were raised in a paradigm where you read the Bible literally and do not question it. Okay, so yeah. Being in the Bible Belt, right? So many of us grew up with this mindset. But the problem is, there are some really terrible stories in the Bible. Ones that cannot be explained away. Ones that will make you question the very nature of God. And for a lot of us here, Um, appealing to the word as truth no questions asked is simply not a sustainable response for what should be an ever-evolving and maturing faith so the Old Testament the Old Testament reminds me of those Disney fairy tales because as a kid you take them in and you don't really think anything of it Like, you know, Cinderella's abused by her stepmother and stepsisters. Belle falls in love with her kidnapper. Like, isn't that messed up? (laughs) And of course, we all know most of the princesses require a charming prince to swoop in and save them in all their helplessness, creating unhealthy gender norms and perpetuating harmful patriarchal systems. And you guys know how I feel about that, so I won't get into it. So I had no intention of pushing the whole princess thing onto my kid, believe me. And yet, in an act to prove to me that karma must be real, (laughs) she has taken it upon herself to love all things princess. She wants to wear her princess dress, her princess crown, her golden sparkly shoes every single day. If we are home, she has this uniform on, it has become her non-negotiable, and I have learned that the whole princess thing is not a hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> it's her choice to love it. She loves it. I didn't make her. Fine, I'm okay with it. But as we are watching these fairy tale movies over and over and over again, I am reminded of how dark some of the stories really are. I mean, there is not a Disney movie to be found that doesn't have a really deep element of sadness or tragedy to it. And so I watched my daughter taking all this in and I wonder what her little heart and mind does with all that heavy stuff. And then I remember I watched the same thing as a kid and I don't really have a recollection of thinking too deeply about it, It's just what happens. It was normal to me and I never questioned it until I got older, which brings me back to the Old Testament. It's a part of our biblical canon. We grew up on this stuff, on sex and war and violence. Double-check if you want, it's all in there chock-full, but it's a part of the Bible, God's Word. And somewhere along the way we were taught not to question it, And then somewhere even further down the road, it became essential for us that we don't question it, lest it rock the boat of our faith paradigm. But if you are here today, it is highly likely that at some point you decided you couldn't not ask questions anymore. So while the tendency for a lot of Christians is to just sort of avoid the Old Testament, focus on Jesus, focus on the New Testament, We are covering a series of sermons over the next month focused on the first half of the Bible because, in the words of Mr. Rogers, we can do hard things. We face the hard stuff of our faith head-on, even when it's difficult. We wrestle even when it means wrestling with the Holy Book. We choose to dig deep. And when we go digging into that ancient storehouse, that is the Old Testament, we discover some stories that will really bother us. But instead of running for the hills, we call them for what they are, even when they're terrible. We don't try and make them work if, we don't. if they don't, we just keep wrestling. This is a tenet of an authentic faith, it's okay. And the hard to swallow part is that we never really get anything completely answered. Instead, we have to come back to the same things over and over again. This is called engaging your faith deeply. And to be honest, it's not unlike those fairy tale storybooks, except the ones that offer the alternate endings, you know what I'm talking about? It's like turn to page 23 for this ending, turn to page 39 for this ending. It's kind of like that in that there's not just one way to look at anything in the Bible. The Bible is not an either or kind of book. It is a both and kind of book. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. So hopefully it won't come as a surprise to you that I have multiple interpretations in approaching today's reading. And rather than pick one and act confident like I do most weeks, as if this wrestling of the text were any easier for me, I want to just share my process with you because I don't actually believe it's my job to give you a hard sell on the Bible. Only you can walk your, you know, the road of your own faith experience. All I really want in this sermon moment is to be a part of the larger picture of this church community, of creating generous space for us, to engage our questions and our doubts and our reservations without fear of rejection and knowing that we will often come to different conclusions and that's fine. God's that big, it's amazing. In our reading today, we look at a text that many of us have not known what to do with. It's one of those stories that will make you question God for sure. It's this ancient narrative. Overall, it's about the movement of Yahweh and Abraham's relationship so the moment we are looking at here today the near sacrifice of Isaac is a part of a larger current of meaning and happenings all revealing to us the nature of God but through God's relationship with Abraham Abraham is the catalyst for everything that will come to be in Scripture everything we read about Joseph or Moses or David who Jesus descended from, all start with this ancestral history of Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12 with the divine address. The divine address is the moment in which God chooses Abraham, offering him the great promise of land and posterity and blessing. I will give you the land, you will become a great nation, you will be a blessing to all people of the earth pretty good promise, right? So God promises all of these things to Abraham, and then God sets into motion the fulfillment of these promises. So in a nutshell, the book of Genesis. Abraham goes on this pilgrimage. God provides when it seems impossible or whenever Abraham gets himself into a pickle, which is all the time. God provides abundance again and again and again. Over time, Abraham acquires animals and concubines and slaves in power. And eventually, Isaac is born, and it is built up to be this culmination of all these promises fulfilled. But then we get to chapter 22, today's reading, the sacrifice of Isaac. It doesn't make sense. It actually doesn't make sense. And it's not just that a father would be willing to murder his son. That's what it is. Sacrifice sounds pretty. Murder. That's disturbing. It's not even that God would require this murder. Again, deeply troubling, maybe more troubling for us. But keeping the whole narrative of Abraham in mind, what's most confusing to me is the contradiction of the promise. So everything that God had promised for God to set it all into motion, provide abundantly, including the miraculous conception of Isaac, and then for God to say, okay, now kill Isaac, it contradicts God's own promise. It doesn't make sense. If Isaac dies, the promise dies. So sometimes the only way I can make sense of this story is to read it metaphorically. Sometimes I just, I read it and I see Isaac as representative of of our identities and our egos, and it's like God is asking, are you willing to be defined outside all of this? Who are you if you have nothing? Because Isaac represented everything for Abraham, right? So outside of your material things, outside of your power, your reputation, outside of your family, outside of all you have ever done and acquired, who are you in the eyes of God? And then other times I don't read it metaphorically at all. Every single time I approach the text, it's different because I'm different, because the view is different, because the world has shifted. Some days when I read this story, all I can see is Abraham's role within the world's broken systems of that time, because he's the OG. like He is the original patriarch, (laughs) and he represents so much of what not just Christianity, but like major world religions have used for hundreds of years to oppress, most specifically in relationship to to women and and to slavery. Now, for the most part, society now operates in contradiction to how Abraham would have seen the world. And this is a good thing, right? It, it, It proves the world is improving. This improvement, I believe, reflects our movement toward the kingdom of God on earth and moving toward a culture of equality over time, even if at a snail's frickin' pace, has done so much for how we understand God today. Because when there's no limit to whose voices get heard in the world, from home to the workplace, to the pulpit, music stand? (laughs) When, When all these different voices get heard, we know God, the creator of us all, more fully Abraham and the people of his time didn't have this perspective but I can't help but wonder if he would have gone as far as he did his son at the altar knife at his throat would Abraham have even gotten to this point had other voices had some real input on his faith journey different voices with different perspectives who knows perhaps Abraham would have understood right away what God was ultimately asking of him without having to traumatize his son. And read ahead, dude was affected. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps Abraham would have understood what God was asking of him, which is the same thing God asks of us all. Do you trust me? Do you know who you are? Apart from land posterity blessing, do you know who you are? Do you trust me? So yeah, some days when I read the story, that's where I land. But, like those alternate ending books, I told you I have multiple conclusions. Because on other days, I'm too tired to even try. On those days, I read this for the terrible story that it is, and I acknowledge my exhaustion and constantly having to explain these ugly parts of the Bible. I'm tired of it. And the truth is, there's no perfect way to reconcile these terrible texts. They will always coexist with the rest of scripture. And some days, not all days, not even most days, but some days, it seems important to me to practice having faith in something I just don't understand. To me, this is just a part of the wrestling. On days when I have a little bit more energy, my interpretation and instinct is to just simply step back and say, I'm sorry, As a pastor and as a person representing a faith tradition with an ugly past and an ugly present, I'm sorry that the humanness of this story got muddled with who I know God to be, which is love, (laughs) love, love, love. People often say the Bible is truth and you just have to accept it and that's it. We don't have a say in the matter, it just is. It's just truth. But no one, Spoil alert, No one actually lives like that completely, not even Amish people. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) no matter how literally you say you read scripture, the fact is there's always this context that we can't match in our modern world. There's a dominant consciousness of the day, as Rob Bell put it, that prevails in each story. Part of our wrestling is letting go of what from the text is entrenched in unhealthy societal norms, and then uncovering, dusting off, lifting up, shining into the light, all that is a part of the redemptive message of God. Some say this story of Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows Christ at the cross. But that doesn't really help me when I read it. I'm just like, why is that good? why does death, blood, and violence always have to be a part of this equation? But then I think back to the time when I was in college and I nannied for a summer in Portland. <laughs> One of the kids I nannied was almost three and I just adored her. One night she fell asleep on the couch and I went in there to, to get her up and put her into bed. And I, I remember stopping and just looking down at her while she slept. And I mean, I must have, I, maybe it was 19 had this guttural reaction in that moment. And the best way I could describe it in words is I would die before I let anything happen to this kid. The best way I could instinctively verbalize love was to include death in this scenario. We live in a world where death is all around us. It is unavoidable. And this is the context in which we understand things, in which we understand the world, that something could triumph over death and darkness and evil. Sometimes it's how we fathom love. So sometimes I read this story and I'm like, oh, the writer wanted us to understand how deeply God loves and how out of that love provides to no end. Uh, Why didn't you just say that? It's it's, It's supposed to be a story of provision, but reading it in our modern context, I don't know about you, but I actually lose trust in God when I read it. That God would even pretend to require something so awful, so heartless leaves us rattled regardless of the outcome. The point of this story is to display God's abundant provision, but the dominant consciousness of the time will distract us if we aren't willing to do the digging to find that redemptive message. The part that actually has to do with God. This is exactly why, when it comes to these terrible stories, we face them as often as we can. We engage with them in order order to wrestle the beauty out of them, understanding that it takes hard work to do it. Why do we do it? Wouldn't it just be easier to throw it all out? Maybe, and some days I feel like it. (laughs) But something deeper in us, let's call it the Spirit of God, is compelled to believe that somewhere in all that digging, we will find life. Which brings me to my final alternate ending, to approaching these terrible texts. And it's probably the only one that really counts. And it is the simple reminder to never, ever, 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 read a text without considering the Bible's theme and purpose as a whole. We can't read any of these stories without stepping back and trying to get a grip on what the bigger picture is, on what it all means. I think that the overall word both in this story today and in the whole sweep of the Bible boils down to salvation, meaning life, new life. Indeed, this text surprises us with life. So we lean into that, not away. We feel uncomfortable with this story, never comfortable. We've got questions, we're never quite settled, but we lean into all of this because on some level, life is to be found. On some level in this story, Abraham in all his imperfection and limitations and mistakes made knew that God had the ability to bring life to this death scenario. And that's what God does, right? God surprises us with life again and again, even though we're surrounded by death in every direction. So whether through found life found in our sacred community or the birth of a baby who did the child dedication last week or our work, our endless work of peace and justice in the world, or the hope of the resurrection, which is our central hope as Christians, We are constantly being confronted with life amidst death. I see so much hope in this redemptive message of God. I even see it in today's story, and somehow that strengthens me to sit with the discomfort of it as I continue to dig. Continue to dig, because these are my thoughts on this text today. But ask me tomorrow, and I might have a totally different response. I hope for the sake of your own wrestling, For the sake of your own depth of intimacy with the divine that you might have a different answer tomorrow too. And the next day and the day after that as well. And as we keep digging deep together in holy community, may you never feel alone or crazy or scared or rejected. And what's more, may you take an irreverent, wild, mystical delight in this road less traveled. In this reckless, wrestlefield faith. So, my prayer continues to be for all of us, God, hold us in your truth. Amen.